And we are live with our 195th episode of Absolute AppSec. I'm Ken Johnson at CK Tricky on Twitter, joined by my co-host Seth Law at Seth Law on Twitter. Seth, say hi. Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome back to another episode. Happy to be back as usual. Um, that one guy, I, I don't even know how sly. I they, whatever is first right every time on 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 youtube um also in slack uh just a couple of announcements uh first of all i think it's next end of next week we will be at cactus con ken and i will be we're doing a workshop looking at some code we'll do a live on air um, um on stage uh episode of the podcast uh, we also need to figure out who we're going to have on with that, Ken. Um, see who else is down in um, Arizona that week. I know like Mike McCabe and there's a few others. I, I, there's quite a few that will be at CactusCon, so it should be a good time. Um, on Wait, top Mike's of that, going to CactusCon? Who is? Mike you said is Mike there. McCabe? Yep, yep. Michael oh, McCabe. man. All right. Cool. All right. Yep. Um, and maybe I'm wrong, and he's probably not even listening. We'll see. Um, but he did mention something about biking and being there. So, uh, outside of that, the other announcement that we've got is that we are training for DEF CON training in April in Seattle. So we're doing the secure code review course at, um, at the DEF CON trainings that'll be there downtown or wherever it's at in Seattle, right? If you go to training.defcon.org and we will post the link. You are able to sign up uh, early and get a discount to that, but it will be our full course. We're doing updates for this year as well for the course. So we're adding in um, some kind of more extensive exercises. Um, we got a, you know, a few ideas to actually improve things. Obviously, you know, it's a, it's a living training course as far as Ken and I are concerned. So there's quite a bit that um, we're going to add based on our experience over the last couple of years, or the last year, especially, um, so, you know, we will be promoting that pretty heavily over the next couple of months. Uh, we will also be at DEF CON in August as well training. Um, so there's going to be more opportunities that pop up. I did post that a little bit in the Slack channel, but we'll post links to everything there as well. Um, yeah, I think outside of that, Ken, I, I think those are the, the big announcements for now. Obviously, we're looking for more opportunities and more, you know, uh, places to go and train. Uh, depends on conferences and you know availability for both Ken and I as this new year goes goes on. Anything so else, Ken? With... A... Yeah, go ahead. Nope. Confirmed that Mike will be there. So okay, great, awesome, great, great. Um, yeah, so CactusCon. Uh, Seattle, DEFCON trainings. Um, yeah, I think that's about it. Uh, or KernelCon. Is it, when is KernelCon again? You said it, it's March. Is that what it's in? Um, <laughs> Sorry, yeah, I'm like... Yeah, it is. I don't have it pulled up right here. KernelCon.org. That one um, we, we submitted for, so I'm not sure. Oh, oh April. so that'd be in April. Oof. Yeah. That's going to be... Tight timeline. Yeah, we're going to have to figure that out. <laughs> it's going to be, be a pretty quick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that should be fun. Uh, because the 13th and the 14th is also the DEF CON trainings, Ken. Duh. Um, 
we've got some, uh, yeah, we're going to have to. Talk about that. <laughs> we'll de-duplicate we'll de off air. <laughs> yeah, or, exactly. Uh, figure out what we're we'll, doing. We'll figure yeah. out what's going on with all the different training opportunities. That's all. Yeah, um, people tend to schedule conferences around like similar times, you know, and it's just maybe it just makes it difficult, but yeah, no complaints. Yep. Cool. Um, yeah, let's see. So as far as what we wanted to talk through today, um, there were a couple of different items that have pos- popped up in the last couple of weeks. Uh, we had Frank on last week, so I, I don't think we got to a lot of like the news items that we would regularly get to. Um, or just like technical blog posts. I think we're, we're full up with a lot of technical blog posts right now. Um, yeah. So Ken, where do you want to start? What do you want to talk about first? Well, let's briefly just mention Jerry's, um, article here. I'll put it into, uh, at the YouTube Slack and, and or YouTube, <laughs> the YouTube chat. And then, uh, apps, apps like Slack. Clearly I'm, I need a second for that. I don't know, man. I've been getting up earlier and earlier and earlier as time goes on. And so by the time, you know, I've already been working for six hours now since, you know, by the time we get to these podcasts, so <laughs> I've got, uh, for those listening, I've got like a, a second puppy we've had for a few months. And um, yeah, the two dogs are getting me up pretty early every day, which is good. I get stuff done, but, you know, also up very early. So. Uh, anyways, so you put the, okay. That was, you, the, uh, that was the training. Um, let me drop. Yeah. You dropped the CVE in there, that CVE data. Um, and those, if you don't know, we haven't had Jerry on for a while, but Jerry's a good friend of ours. Um, always doing interesting research. If you're not following his blog or him on Twitter or some of the other social medias, you should be. Um, cause he always has some interesting stuff to say. Uh, for a while though, he's been tracking CVE data. I think this is, he's done this like data review on a yearly basis a few times, um, if I can remember right, but go check his blog to, to actually see. Um, uh, one of the things I did want to call out that I found very interesting this year, though, um, and maybe I can show it here. Let me see. Um, I'll share my Chrome tab, CD data review. Okay. So you should be able to see that, right? Yep. Um, this is the breakdown of the top uh, CVE, what are they, CNAs, whatever that stands, CVE numbering authorities, right? Uh, where CVEs are actually coming from. And this actually it does give us a lot of background on what's being published as CVEs and what languages are affected, um, kind of what platforms Like obviously Google and Apple are in there, but the top one is github.com, which isn't overly surprising. I mean, when is it that they actually started allowing direct CVE import from GitHub, Ken? It's been a couple of years. I have no idea, but yeah, I think it's been a couple of years. It's been a little bit. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, Mm -hmm. overall, it's probably not too surprising given the number of um, products that are on GitHub and are using GitHub to track their, you know, their issues, security issues, and then it automatically will push here. So th- there's not a lot there to be said about framework and language. What, what I find interesting is number two there is WPScan.com. Um, do you know what that is, Ken? I mean, I know what WPScan is, the, the WordPress scanner, but 
but no, that that's what it is, yeah. right? Like it's the WordPress scanner, uh-huh. right? So contact uh-huh. at wpscan.com. What does that tell you about the number of CVEs for uh, WordPress specifically in PHP? That it's things are still going great with it with WordPress and PHP is what you're saying. Yes, yes, really great. Yeah, but the positive that I have here as well is actually that what like the fifth that's there. It's not VolmDB. It's not Microsoft. You know, which is also interesting. But it's Hunter.dev. Oh. Um, and that that's what I wanted to call out, right? Uh, we've had the Hunter.dev guys on, um, but they are pushing more and more into the open source CVE space. I mean, this is, this is promising to see. If you want to go do secure code review and get paid for it, um, and you're not working for a consultancy or you're not working for a company like Ken, and, you know, uh, this is where you can go. It's, it's open source bug bounties um, and, you know, yeah, well, kudos to the hundred hundred dot dev folks because that's you know that's a pretty big. Uh, how do I say it? You know that that's a good thing from our perspective because it is people digging into the code, finding vulnerabilities, and then pushing those out and getting publicly acknowledged for those vulnerabilities as far as the CDEs go. I found the episode, so I'm going to link this. Um, take out the time here. I'm going to link out this episode of Hunter.dev in case you're curious uh, to learn a little bit more about um, what they, how the, how they basically coordinate security researchers with uh, with the development community. So put that in there now. Cool. And they do that have episode a bunch 93. Of, yeah. Cool. It's interesting. They have a bunch of. Uh, different open bounties on top of the stuff they do on GitHub. So it's come quite a while or quite a ways since we actually had them on. Absolutely. Cool. Um, I don't know. Uh, anything else there that you want to talk about from Jerry's post? Uh, no, not really. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's pretty much just a st- statistical breakdown. There's not, you know, um, I think you've already covered the stuff that I thought was somewhat interesting to to mention. Um, I guess the only other thing I'd mention is my minor nitpick with the security community. Please okay. use lowercase h, or please stop using lowercase h when you mention Git. I've seen this a bunch, man. I've seen it a bunch lately in in like blog posts and, and things people have re- researched where it's always GitHub with a, a lowercase h, <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> I don't know why, but it just it just bothers me. So please. If you're listening and you're going to write the so word lowercase everything, right? Capital yeah, G or lowercase everything, capital G, yep. capital H. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, all jokes aside. Yeah. Thanks for releasing that, Jerry. Good stuff. Um, not a lot else for me to really honestly uh, extrapolate there. Did you read through all of the cores uh, blog posts, by the way? Um, I, I did initially, but it's been a little while. It sounds like you just did. So maybe let's jump to that one next. I always love the, the first half. I spent a lot of time on the, what's that? Okay. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, no. I, I only got through the first half. So I've spent oh. much more time on the GraphQL part because that was the article I found the most interesting. So I'll, I'll, I'll post this though. Here we go. Um, <laughs> thanks, Mike McCabe. <laughs> People need respect such a troll <laughs> he wrote everything <laughs> lowercase except for the age asshole i love it uh <laughs> such a troll that's great this is this is the trolling i needed 
Um, yeah, so there's the core article. Um, I think everybody watching this is probably familiar with cross-origin resource sharing, uh, you know, just a way to kind of, yeah, between sites, share certain resources. Um, they do a quick breakdown where they talk about how, like, uh, if you do a wildcard uh, for like allowed origins, then you can't pass session details. Um, if you do a uh, specific domain, then the responses can be read by. Um, so if I send a request, if I send a request off originating from site A to site B, then when the response from site B comes back to site A, it can be read. And of course, if you made that request to site B, passing in a session to site B, you know, it, it, let's say it's some like sensitive data that only your user should be able to access, then, you know, site A is, uh, yeah, there's some exposure there. Whereas if you have the asterisks, then uh, in the access control allow origin response header, then you're not going to be, that's the rule. You can't send a session, which is great, right? Because you don't want to like every website <laughs> that exists to be able to, uh, yeah, to, to have those kind of requests go off and then read the responses. All right, so now, usually pretty good, pretty good control, not, not problematic. Seems like though in this blog, blog post, they're really focusing on attacking internal applications that don't require authentication. Um, so that's where I'll take a pause, Seth, and because that's about where I got to. Uh, yeah. As I as I re continue to read through here, yeah, I don't know if you have any input you want to provide. No, I. So the the main thing here with that is that new of cores exploitation. So it's an exploitation toolkit that you can actually set up to target organizations, right? That's what they've done, and they've actually developed this. The interesting thing with cores is that we haven't necessarily had, like we've identified these misconfigurations over time, right? Like, you know, okay, where are the weaknesses with a course, a course configuration, whether you're using the star or not. Um, but we haven't necessarily had these, these sorts of exploitation tools available if we are targeting a specific organization. Um, obviously there's a little bit more that probably needs to go into this. If you're trying to enumerate some of those internal domains, like I think they've got like Uber internal or something like that, that they've, they've loaded up there as an example. Um, but, uh, that's, that's kind of the big news here is that there is an application that's available. It's been, you know, you've had to kind of roll this on, roll this on your own in the past. Um, I mean, some of the core stuff that Kevin Cody and Tim Tomes did a number of years ago was was interesting for, you know, um, brute forcing passwords and interacting with sites, you know, in a automated fashion um, with thousands of endpoints or thousands of browsers, I should say. But in this case, it's actually attempting to enumerate internal subdomains like you know, launch some of these JavaScript payloads, like looking for specific data associated with them, um, like provide at least some sort of query ability, you know, when using the victim's browser, what they can actually see. Um, and then it's meant to be deployed on a, a target that is a similar URL to that of the affected resource, right? Yeah, I know they did an organization. Off by one, they said. So, like the example they give is like instead of corp something dot com or dot whatever, it's uh, orp. So just like the uh, which is 
So true. Because how many times do you go to write something and you don't hit that first letter and then you yep. just type out the rest? So like they're just capitalizing on that, which makes a lot of sense. Yeah. <laughs> Orpinternal.com. Well, and it's pretty easy nowadays to actually enumerate out some of those internal domains uh, just from, you know, Mascan, some of the DNS um, subdomain tools that are out there, um, OSN activities, right? Like we've got a lot of this information that's out there. I, this is probably going to be more helpful to somebody that's doing bug bounty than necessarily what you or I do um, on a daily basis. Uh, or red but team. still, yeah. Yep, red teaming activities where you've got a, you know, a month long engagement. You do have some sort of target that you're hitting, so you're going to start to identify those cores vulnerabilities quickly, and then release this sort of a utility to see what else you can actually do with it. Um, but it will also enumerate those cores vulnerable internal websites that someone is going to if they are, you know, if they do get to your site itself but there's got to be some sort of delivery there whether it is the mistyping of the name or phishing you know phishing emails is pretty common as well so to just recap what they did here with tesla they registered eslamotors.com you know tesla motors without the, the without the t yep. they had 150 subdomains from that primary domain uh, teslamotors.com that they had they had mapped out they waited for someone to fat finger and type in eslamotors.com. When that page was reached, then requests went out to all 150 subdomains via cores off based off of uh, the request originating from eslamotors.com. And then they waited for uh, responses from, you know, um, those 150 domains. 12 of them were configured to allow cross-origin access uh, with cores. They have a screenshot with the affected domains. Um, course saves the HTML content returned from sites with cores. Um, and, ah, so then they got the HTML content back for location.teslamotors.com. Um, see, I'm trying to see what's interesting. Um, uh, oh yeah. So, well, so they were able to reach, uh, yeah, they're able to reach an internal app. Um, presumably if that app's responding with, you know, sensitive information, um, of any kind, then yeah, you've captured that and that's, uh, pretty cool. Um, yeah, I mean, it's pretty, pretty decent. Um, plus you can, yeah, I mean, you could, I guess you could start sending all kinds of different requests off to that subdomain. So that's, that's great. Um, within the internal network. Yeah, I'm not sure. Any other, did I miss anything? Anything else you wanted to add there? Not necessarily, right? Like that, I mean, the real interesting thing to me again is that uh, like we're starting to see tooling come out for some of these attacks or these theoretical attacks or proof of concept attacks that we had a number of years ago. And now it's, it's going to become more and more useful to the bug bounty hunters, to the researchers in general. Um, you know, I see stuff like this and I start to question, okay, how do we actually implement that on an assessment, right? Where I do have such a limited scope of, all right, I'm looking at this single application. Is there a way that I can actually, you know, target some of this? Um, realistically, from my perspective, cores is either implemented correctly or it's not. And so that's what I'm going to call out, right? Like when I'm looking at a scope site and you're probably the same way. Um, I'm sure you guys have your recommendations and the stuff you check from a cores perspective. Um, but mm -hmm. it's like it, part of uh, low hanging fruit security hygiene 
secure code requirements. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So I'm with you, but still uh, something to play with, right? Like if you haven't done it before, you are in one of the bike bounty programs, go for it and tell us what you think. Um, tell us how useful it actually is. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Hey, you know, tack GitHub too. Let us know if you find anything. We got a bounty program. Um, yeah. Ken Toller mentioned something too, which is that, you know, there's often secrets in the JavaScript coming back from these internal apps. Um, no, no, that never happens. Never. <laughs> yeah. I've seen it. Um, no, I, I, yeah. So I've, I mean, I know you're joking, but yeah, I know I've seen it. Um, but I wasn't aware that it was that, that prevalent, I think pri primarily because, um, the world's gotten weird in, in terms of what's considered. It used to be, if you called an internal app an internal app, it meant it just didn't sit on the, it wasn't, a, you couldn't get to it from the internet, you know? Um, now the concept of internal app is more like, okay, is it behind, say, like Okta or something like that, you know, a single sign-on platform um, or your own, you know, skim or whatever, like what, it, you know what I mean? Like behind some, like still web accessible, but maybe behind some kind of wall of some, some gate. Uh, you know, so anyways, it's, I don't know. It's, I just, I don't know that, um, what, yeah, you're a consultant. Do you see this? Uh, do you ever get access to internal apps, uh, for testing or is it mostly just like you're testing prod forward facing external apps? Uh, no, I mean, we get in there in internal apps, um, but it's usually pretty scoped to something that is prod facing. Right. And so I like, we don't necessarily see as much internal app secrets that are exposed in this manner. Um, right. Like most of the time I'll see it in code bases and you know, that's, that, that's pretty common, especially for dev and QA environments. Um, we see the, the keys and other things that live in the code itself, or you have access to like .env files through QA or internal, right. Like that have those sorts of details in them. Um, just because the web server is not set up to protect against that and they're just going to dump whatever's in a specific folder, right? Like that, that kind of stuff will happen from time to time. But from a prod, like testing, dynamic testing perspective, it's uh, like it hasn't been super common for us. Like that's not a, that's not one that I would say was even in our top like 10 findings, right? Like, you know, it's probably further, like way further down that list. I wonder why they're doing that. I guess maybe because they just assume like um, it's on the internal network only and, you know, it should be safe or something. I mean, I still I can't, I still have a hard pro, like hard time believing that security people be okay with it, but maybe it's like a lower priority to, to look for those types of things, which would make sense, right? If you're like a five person and you're lucky to have a five person AppSec team, your focus is going to probably be, I would imagine elsewhere if just depending on, yeah, a lot, lot of context to get to, 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 there are a lot of factors, right? Like uh, size of the organization, how many apps you push, a lot of things like that. But yeah, I guess it makes sense that people would just, developers would just think like it's on the, no, it's hidden. It's only for employees who cares. It's not a big deal. Yeah. yeah and I, I mean, honestly, they're promoting their Truffle Hog Chrome extension there too, Truffle Security. Oh, gotcha. And I just posted that. Um, so, and that's part of it is like, oh, like we detect for the, we detect these keys in JavaScript. I mean, GitHub would do the same thing if you were posting keys into a JavaScript file. It's going to notice that. It's going to tag it, right? Um, but, you know, 
like their example there in this other blog post that they've got that's linked from there is that, you know, hey, weather.com, I think it is, actually has an AWS key that's in the in JavaScript, right? That's being used to pull different apps or different content from AWS, um, which is, yeah, I mean, you don't want to do that, obviously. So could be interesting. I'm not sure how much they actually see that, but at the very least, there's some tools that are out there available to you to actually check for it. Well, they, they, they show an example of uh, AWS and AWS key from weather.com. So that's fairly, uh, fairly interesting, I suppose. Um, that could be one way, I guess. Maybe it's easier to interact with without setting up environment variables and going through all the rigmarole um, and getting an SDK, you know, like, especially if you just want like a, uh, here's where I could really see it is when you're using like static content only and not, you don't have any kind of uh, host OS to, yeah, do those types of things like in, in inject secrets securely, you know, into your um, into your machine's environment, and then also like uh, or a way to call out securely for for those uh, values, and then um, an SDK that you would have to import into your your library stack and run. Um, so if you're just doing a static site, uh, yeah, I guess that 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 would be like very common, I would think. Uh, but yeah. Yeah. Why use and there their was, site if they give you the key? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, and there was also, at speaking along, I'm trying to find, there's another article that I didn't have in our list that um, that had to do with uh, somebody searched, I think it was all of the, was it the Python or the Node? Um, package managers for uh, AWS keys, right? Oh. <laughs> yeah. And actually found, like, they scanned the whole repository, like, every single... Um, where's it at? I wonder if people are still using Weird Al to brute force uh, yeah, AWS, stolen AWS keys. I, it's useful, man. I, like, if I, if I find one on an assessment, like, we do, right? Like, that's a, you know... Hey, what sort of access does this key actually have? It's a useful tool to have in your arsenal. Um, I'm not seeing it there. There was I'm trying to remember which Slack it came through nowadays. That's my problem, right? Let's see. That's uh, not in there. Yeah. I'll, I'll see if I can find it, but we can move on from here. Um, I just, uh, yeah. While I'm, yeah. Anyways, while I was there, I just uh, saw a pull, pull request on Weird Al. So, uh, yeah. Uh, See, you. people Managed people updating things, right? Yeah. 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 There you go. Reminded me. I forgot about that. Um, cool. Well, I don't know. I don't have like much else to talk about there. I don't know if you want to move on to like GraphQL or something else. Yeah. Let's talk GraphQL. I, this one's so GraphQL is interesting because I. Um, I was at a meetup last week and GraphQL just in general came up and there was like a, um, a couple of the guys that aren't necessarily in AppSec, they're more in just like security in general, right? Like they're doing network security and SecOps and some of the other things. They're like, oh yeah, GraphQL seemed to be hot for a minute, but we just don't see a lot of it anymore. And I'm like, oh really? Um, because if anything, on the AppSec side of things, the usefulness of GraphQL, the, the, the way that we make queries, I'm seeing more just like general uptake of GraphQL, whether that's from mobile apps or 
you know, web apps in general, then, um, then I'm seeing other APIs. I mean, we're always going to see RESTful APIs, XML, so, you know, whatever. But GraphQL is definitely a larger percentage there. I don't know from your perspective if that's the case, if you're still seeing quite a bit of that. Yeah, I mean, I, I still... So, you know, obviously I, I do research outside of my day job and in both uh, cases. So I see GraphQL still at my day job and then outside my day job, still see GraphQL. Um, wouldn't say I see an increase, just pretty much same as I've seen. You know, it's pretty, it's fairly common for people to start going this route. I think it's because, so like, you know, the article talks about this, but, you know, traditionally when you talk about building an API that people can access, you, you have mostly two routes. You have the REST API. Cool. That's what we're all familiar with. Um, and then you've got GraphQL. Those are like the primary ways. At REST, the so, and they call this out a bit too, but REST is a bit more uh, structured in a um, specific way. And if you change how, like what parameters and how uh, ultimately that, REST API endpoint is um, structured. You've just got to rebuild the documentation, which is, can totally be done in an automated way for sure. Uh, people have done that, but like, um, it's just, it's kind of more rigid, I guess. So if you make changes, it's not like on the fly, you can see what now, what has changed in the query or, uh, you know, information you're going to send to the REST API, whether it's a post, get, whatever. So where whereas GraphQL is much more flexible, like you... And, and then we should break down like the difference between query mutation and subscriptions with GraphQL. So, you know, with GraphQL, everything's a post request to forward slash, typically anyways, forward slash GraphQL. The article mentions other common endpoints you might see associated with GraphQL, but that's kind of the, 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 the normal standard. It's like a post request to forward slash GraphQL. Now, that's the format of the request, but then like how you format those requests, uh, like the, in the body, the portion of the request, that's like, that's where we, we get into the meat of things. And so that's where we talk about query mutation and uh, subscription. So a query is you just trying to pull information back and, and you, know, you think about, think about that as a lot of the, uh, the get endpoints that you would have with a RESTful API. You're just retrieving things. And a mutation is more of so, sort of the, the CRUD operations. You're actually changing some, something in the back end, right? You're changing data around. So that'd be like your typical post request, put patch delete to a RESTful API. In any case, mutations are how you actually modify data on the GraphQL. And subscriptions are, I'm going to subscribe for a specific event. If that event occurs, then via WebSockets, usually anyways, send me back some information. So those are kind of the things, though, that you're going to see most often when you're testing, you know, like queries and um, uh, mutations. So yeah. anyways, breaking I, that I, apart, what's interesting. It, oh, go ahead. No, I, I, I was going to roll back just a tiny bit, like as far as like RESTful versus GraphQL, like one of the things that I did want to call out is the reason that we see people use GraphQL, especially in apps like web apps, mobile apps is because of the flexibility there that's associated with it, right? Like you make a change to a RESTful endpoint and it usually means you also need to make a change to the front end application that's calling it, right? That's why you see things like V1, V2, V3 and RESTful endpoints because you have different versions and it's very static. Like once you deploy that endpoint or that RESTful interface, 
you're not going to necessarily going to change it because it's going to break your application. Whereas GraphQL, you can go ahead and extend like the query, like what's available in there. And you're not going to break that mobile application or that front end, uh, you know, React JS application because you made an update to the API itself or the data that was available there. So, but you're absolutely right as far as like what we see from a testing perspective, query mutation operations, right? I, like I see some subscriptions, but it's it's kind of few and far between, at least in the applications that I've dealt with. Yeah, and everything you've called out is you know super on point. Where where it gets you know I guess where it gets interesting is uh, you know introspection, and we're all, I think most people who know GraphQL know there's introspection where you can ask it like what what's your schema like what are the thing what are the ways I should be formatting my queries and my mutations and all that, which is obviously really great because as a tester now it's like it's like asking the REST API, hey, can you tell me how to formulate each of my HTTP requests so that it it you know it's compatible with whatever. So that's great. Like that's, that's, that's awesome. Um, and then specifically because of what Seth just said, that's really important because what attributes were exposed yesterday may not be the same attributes that are exposed today. And again, everything will work perfectly fine um, in that case. So that, that's great. Um, but what they show as you get uh, farther down into the uh, articles, they show, you know, hey, I see uh, get articles and get users. And, uh, you know, there's an articles and a user's model. Um, as you can imagine with the user model, there's going to be all those things that are pretty typical, like a user ID, email address, password, first and last name, you know, those typical attributes that belong to that that model or that, that uh, database table. So, Obviously, when it tells you, hey, let me get users and provide, here's what you can provide, which is like, I, I forget, but it's like, we'll say ID and name, right? It's like, okay, cool. Yeah, you should be able to get information on users for that ID and that name. But, you know, knowing that there's additional attributes that exist that aren't being necessarily told that you can act, you're not being told you can access those attributes, but you can pretty much infer those attributes exist. Then you start adding it, those additional parameters, similar, uh, you know, a little bit different in the way the end result works, but similar to like how you would attack mass assignment. You're just adding in yeah. additional attributes and values to, to well, attributes, not values to, to retrieve. And I guess it would be values if you're using this with mutation, you actually want to modify data. But in any case, that's kind of the example, the basic example of abusing um, GraphQL they showed. They also give you a GraphQL website that you can... So they created a vulnerable GraphQL website that you could like play around with and and uh, just get a feel for how this all works. Yeah. And I, I mean, one of the things, if you haven't played with it before, there's that they break down the full introspection query. There's, there's ways to prevent that on the GraphQL side of actually allowing introspection, um, but it will break specific developer tools if you do that. Um, to get around that, there are a couple of actually plugins for Burp, if you've never played with it, that will look at the traffic as it goes back and forth and build your own um, GraphQL kind of knowledge base um, just based on the requests that are being sent and responses that are coming back from GraphQL kind of from a, as a you know dynamic uh, way to pull that same information back um, is, you know building that out. Um, let's see what else is in here. I mean, the, the most interesting thing that we typically see when I'm testing is the ability to access data that we shouldn't be able to, just like Ken was saying, in the query 
query requests, and then also updating data, um, whether it is you know user data or article data in the cases of what you know cyber value is broken down here, but being able to update data that I shouldn't be able to actually see or do, right? Um, the authorization routines that are built into GraphQL can also get fairly complex, especially because of the levels of um, query access that are that are built into it, right? Like I can query, you know, in the case of the user, I could query a user. And then if there's an attribute on that user that's also points back to another model, like say company or organization, I can query that organization from within there and I can do that over and over and over, right? I can cascade down and see if there's a way to actually get around that and any authorization restrictions that may exist on the root level, but may not exist if I'm calling inside of an organization 20, 20 layers deep, right? Um, so there's all kinds of uh, authorization or, you know, barriers or, uh, um, gates that you have to pass or you have to check from a, a, a GraphQL perspective on the server side before you return any data. Uh, that being say, said, you know, using something like Apollo or some of the other GraphQL tools that are out there are pretty helpful when building out those services. Uh, you probably don't want to be crafting this by hand if you are building a GraphQL endpoint. Um, I'd be surprised if anybody is building it by hand nowadays, but you never know, right? Like we still see people, you know, generating their own cookie values when it comes down to it. Um, yeah. Anything else on that article, Ken? No, I just recommend downloading their vulnerable uh, GraphQL app and running with those uh, tools. They have a whole list of tools and references and show you some basics about I think this is a really helpful tool or article, excuse me, um, yeah. for, for getting your head around GraphQL if you haven't had to go down that route or if you just haven't wanted to. So highly recommend. Great read. Yep, it is. It is. I, I mean, I don't uh, like I've I don't think I've ever seen it broken down quite so well. And from a security cons uh, from a security perspective, right, most of my knowledge from this is, has been from GraphQL.org or whatever as it is, or using something like graphical uh, to actually interact, uh, but build some of those queries. Oh, they even call out the different like uh, Burp Suite plugins there too. The Voyager vis uh, visualizer tool is pretty useful. Yep. Cool. Um, yeah, where do I have it? Okay, so that's their, their Graphicator. That's new. Damn vulnerable GraphQL. There you go. That's what you can play with. All right, uh, good. What else do you want to cover now, Ken? Stop sharing my screen there. The only thing that was left uh, in our list that I don't think we've gotten to, but I haven't, you know, I haven't read this article. I'm kind of like skimming now, but the prototype pollution bit. Uh, yes, that's a bit. That's a bit lengthy, though. So yeah, I, I, that might be some heavy lifting on your end as I get up to speed. Yeah. Um, yeah, let me see. I mean, it's a good breakdown on prototype pollution in Python, right? As opposed, like, if you've heard of prototype pollution before, and here we'll post it quick. Um, I don't think we're going to be able to flexibility. get this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All of it. I, the interesting to me thing 
to me was the fact that it was coming across in Python as opposed to JavaScript, because that seems to be the main place where we see a lot of prototype pollution vulnerabilities and research being done. Um, and he, he gives a, a warning right up the top there, this uh, Abdul Ra, oh, Abdul Rahim, I guess, right? Um, that he's working on this. So it's active like research that he's doing. Um, you know, it was posted uh, a week or so ago. Um, but like all of these kind of unintended consequences when we start dealing with the specifics of a language, a framework, right? Um, this ability to actually prototype out like inheritance of, um, yeah. So inheritance of, of parameters within a within a language um, leads to interesting edge cases where I can actually define a a parameter or a variable in my you know in my calling script and have it actually take over that value as it's being processed by the server itself. It's a it's a it's a style of injection vulnerability um, and. I think that's probably why it is pretty heavily dependent on JavaScript or we see a lot of research in JavaScript because we don't always take those variables from the client when we are processing something on the back end on the server itself. But inside the browser, this is very, you know, it's very common that an attacker has access to that full surface. And so if I overwrite that variable or I inject a value into that variable that allows me to take over that that variable's value as it's processed by the browser or before it's sent to the server, that can cause problems to the application itself. Um, I'm not sure if I'm explaining that very well though, Ken. No, it sounds right. Like, you know, if you look at, if you were to look at any object in memory, uh, you know, and do some inspection, there's a whole bunch of, typically anyways, there's, there's a lot of different classes or modules that, 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 uh, whatever object you're looking at has inherited from. So, you know, base level would be like class and then, you know, getting down farther. It might, you know, a good example would be when we talk about, um, since we're talking about, uh, well, we'll talk about Rails controllers. That's a good example. Rails controllers, you know, most controllers inherit from application uh, controller. And so when you look at it, it's like, you know, controller, then application controller, then whatever else further on and so forth. And, and these target dunder methods which are like primitives inside of J uh, python which is like every everything has these methods uh available which so i think you've explained all of the the inheritance bit and if you're at any point and by the way i've seen this recently and, and it caused some authorization flaws so i say i see it sorry someone on my team saw this or people on the team saw this and um it was causing actually some um some authorization stuff to fail because uh, one was overriding the other. And so like imagine one method uh, with the same name overriding another method, which is essentially what this is. Uh, and then, you know, basically not acting the way that or not doing what it, the original method what intended. And this new method clobbered all of that logic and in, injected its own logic and just ruined our uh, authorization in, in that one specific case. This is um, my clearest way to kind of explain, you know, yeah, how inheritance and redefining methods and overriding how they intend to be used and, and how they work uh, is.
Yep. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I mean, it's pretty complex, right? When it gets down to it, as he gets into, I mean, he, he's using like class attributes, right? As opposed to, or special attributes, the underbar, underbar class, or, you know, or Dunder yeah, methods, base, basically yeah, things that are all on every object. Yeah. 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 For, you know, introspection or not, or reflection, right? Like the ability to actually script out some of this and inspect your own values internally within Python. So it's not necessarily that this is going to be exploitable, say, via, uh, you know, against a Django application, you know, from a web application. Um, but if they accept some sort of Python that is executed within the application itself, that's where it starts to be more interesting. This is the sort of injectable data that leads to RCEs, right? Um, the fact that we have control over those variables, we can in, you know, push something into those values that is then executed or it overwrites you know, a special administrator function, something along those lines, right? Like it, it's all cascading, but this is the research that leads to those sorts of vulnerabilities. Um, I'd highly recommend it, especially if you are a Python developer or you are putting something together in Python. I think, you know, especially if you are pushing out Lambda functions in AWS um, that are all Python based, you've got to be aware of what is actually set, what, where you're pulling variables from, uh, before it gets to the Lambda itself, because a lot of this does end up getting exposed um, in certain situations. And it may not necessarily be like by an attacker, like an anonymous attacker out on the internet, but some sort of blob that's being uploaded and parsed by the, the, the Lambda function itself could have effects, um, prototype pollution style exploits or vulnerabilities in, you know, built into it as we explode those objects. So. Yeah, you can see some of this. I, I, you know, I would almost call it metaprogramming type stuff. I'm gonna actually, yeah. since we had mentioned Weird Al before, and we are talking about Python, and Weird Al uses reflection, um, and it's written in Python. I figure I'll, um, I'll kind of highlight. I mean, here's one example of what what kind of some some of this might like. Um, you know, it's it's simpler. You know, I'll, I guess I'll just, I don't know, whatever. I'll just briefly break this down. Um, when we were developing Weird Al, you know, the idea is it's got a bunch of different modules that you can invoke, right? We don't know what, basically we want to load all those modules from various directories. So there might be an AWS directory, a Google Cloud, Azure, and then, you know, within those subdirectories. And we want, we want people similar to Metasploit, we want people to be able to add those uh, modules and then it, the framework just pick up on it. Right, without having to explicitly say, here's where this file's at. And if you make this command, this is where it's going to go. So to do that, what you have to do is you have to list all of the modules. You have to create modules that are in memory. You have to be able to reference those class names. You have to be able to um, take a command and you know say, okay, well, let's look for whatever you're entering, whatever module. First of all, let's list all those modules. And second of all, when you want to use them and you put in like use or whatever, I forget what nomenclature we gave people, but uh, when you type that in, then we've got to take your argument and say, okay, here's your argument, which means, you know, you want to use this module and map those together to do all of this. You know, if you look at how Metasploit did it, uh, what they did was they, they just literally, you know, every single file got loaded as a, as a module in memory, yep. in memory, a refer yep. reference, a referenceable 
modules, I think I'm trying to say. And then, um, yeah, that's how, how you do it, right? You just append um, a prefix or postfix, probably prefix, and then that's going to map the argument to what that uh, module is. And then you actually have an array of these modules and you pop off the stack you know, that, that, that module off that array. And you say, well, I'm going to select this one. And then that becomes, you know, how you're, and anyways, there's a bunch of other stuff that you do, but we, it's the similar kind of model as Mesploit to do that. But why that's interesting is really all that stuff is the same stuff we're talking about here. It's modifying those objects in memory, creating things on the fly, like classes or modules or whatever. Um, and then, yeah, and loading them in memory, keeping them somewhere, keeping that the focus as somebody interacts with it and all that stuff. So. Anyways, if you well, want to see more, you can always go through that uh, starting point and kind of like follow the thread from there and, and see how it's done in Python. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I mean, and that would be an interesting use case, right? Like in Weird Al, as you're making those calls, what happens when I overwrite some of the other sensitive functions that are built into it, right? Like, you know, the controller objects that are controlling the interface for Weird Al, are you able to overwrite that or rename your own underbar, underbar class, underbar, underbar two? something that is internally referenceable, right? Like, so there's security implications. Yes, it's all just internal to this application that's running on your system. So it's probably not like a high severity, critical severity issue, but at the same time, it shows the flexibility of being able to overwrite something and like what the what the risk of that is. And that's exactly what he's going through here in this blog post. So anyway, yeah, kudos to him on that. It's, a, you know, it is you know, fairly well done. Um, or it's very interesting research from my perspective. Yeah, very much so. This has been, uh, the, the, I feel like this episode, we've, we pivoted from news and normal stuff to this one's just been all hardcore tech. So if you're, um, <laughs> research, yeah. you may want to, uh, cause we've shared our screen quite a bit. Uh, I know a lot of people, you know, go through, uh, whatever platforms to listen that we put out there. So it's worth, I think today because of this episode and the way we, we ran it with uh, share screens and showing stuff, uh, for you to probably, uh, look at it on YouTube. If you're more interested in some of those topics we talked about. Yep. Definitely is right. Or join Slack. We've dropped all the links in there as well. Um, if you mm -hmm. want to follow up with any of that or what it is that we're actually calling out here. Yeah, um, it, man. Yeah. Is anybody listening going to CactusCon? I wanted to see it. Like, if you're going to be going to CactusCon, please hit us up, uh, Seth and I, up on Slack. Like, DM us. We'd love to meet up and say hi. Um, yeah. So I would like. We'd love to bring T-shirts too. I do have swag that we can give out. Um, T-shirts and stickers. Maybe time for a new order. Uh, we are going to have some announcements around that, and like you know, other ways to support the podcast. I know we've talked. We've teased it a couple of times. Um, but that is, that is one thing that we'll do is start to put the logo on some other, uh, on some other items so you can actually support us. Um, yeah. However you would like outside of Crocs and socks. I guess. Crocs and socks. Man, Crocs we got to get some absolute absec Crocs and, and some absolute absec socks. Socks. Yes. Yes. So that's that, that, that may be in the works, right? You know, th there are minimum orders that are expected. And so I like, yeah. Depends on, and they can't be like color. matching colors. It's got to be awful, like bright white socks and <laughs> bright, terribly green, uh... <laughs> ugly. You know what? <laughs> just, just real quick. You know what I found out? Did I tell you this? Like, um, if you, there was a, a podcast episode I watched where Mike Judge was uh, interviewed, and uh, 
just real quick, it's funny in the movie Idiocracy, which is one of my personal favorites, uh, he uses Crocs and the filming was delayed over and over again. And it was really tough to get through. So it took like three years when it should took, I don't know, like half that or less to film. So at the time, Crocs were like not known. And he figured these are the most hideous shoes ever. So he put everybody on the set in Crocs because he figured these are hideous. These will never take off. They're so dumb. Like no one will ever wear these. Right. And well, as it turns out, by the time he finished production, they were like in their boom phase right as he released it. So what was supposed to be this just like shitty, like shouldn't have ever made it thing was like really. And then, you know, lately, obviously, there's been a huge resurgence. There's big croc shops all over the all over the world. So anyways, fun little yeah. story as an aside. Fun, fun tidbit. You come to us for AppSec news and, you know, fashion advice. That's that's why you're here. Um, I hope not. I don't have fashion. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fashionista. No. Okay, so the last thing I did want to call out, and we haven't played with this yet, is Kaido, Saido, um, and oh right, 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 uh, uh, a burp sweet challenger, right? Um, and it's in beta. Um, I I have signed up. I I'm going to start testing this out to actually see you know how it compares. Um, obviously it is an intercepting proxy, very similar to burp suite, right? That's, that is their claim to fame. Um, they posted about it on a couple of different item or, you know, channels. Um, as of right now, I'm not sure exactly, you know, what the differences are right outside of they wanted to start something new and, you know, it's a bug hunter, a bug bounty hunter, a couple of engineers, um, it'll be interesting to see where it goes um, and whether or not it is, I mean, it's written in a, in different languages than Burp Suite, right? Like I know that's one of our complaints over time is that, you know, it is still based on Java um, and you know, Java is Java, right? Like it's very memory heavy, memory intensive. That's not as big an issue as it was probably 10 years ago when we started and we were really, you know, heavily using Burp switching off of other, um, yeah, other, yeah, proxies at that point. So I don't know. Um, I mean, what, what are your thoughts there? Is it something that's even needed, Ken? Well, it's, um, so the, the yearly is a hundred dollars, uh, for the pro tier, the enterprises, of course, um, got to talk to a salesperson about that one. Um, uh, all bugs and feature, uh, they're on GitHub, but again, it's lowercase H gosh community security community no um no i just want to look through no yeah so i mean my, my thoughts are so far you know what i, I don't i don't want to be negative and because i i love the idea that someone's someone's doing something you know um it's just i i i've we've been doing this for so long and i nothing is there have been lots of contenders for burp and there's just nothing that's usurped it yet so yeah. Not that I want anything to. I mean, I like Burp. It's fine. It's you know. I know a lot of people have like uh, issues with uh, not all the same. They they all have different like kinds of things that you know pet peeves or whatever. But it's it's it works right. So um, I don't know. Like I guess what I'm trying to say is, help this does super well. Uh, of course, I never wish anyone otherwise. But um, it's just it, it's. It's hard to get super excited because I've seen a lot, a lot of these come and go. That's what I'm trying to say. So I hope that they do well. I wish uh, the best. I will definitely try this. 
and uh, you know, maybe I, I hope to to eat my words later, kind of thing. That's my thought. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I I mean, the one thing that I do like is that we push the envelope, right? Um, typically, some of like the newer features or necessary items that you know, like like these guys, they're probably scratching an itch that they've had that wasn't necessarily a priority for burp or zap to actually like implement. And so they'll push that envelope. um, And if they do well with it, they'll, I mean, they'll stick around. That's, that's, you know, capitalism, I guess, in a nutshell. Um, Mm. And if not, at the very least, what they do is they force burp and zap to adopt new um, features that'll be useful down the line. So, yeah. I don't know. Now well, I'm digging through their GitHub repos. Right? That's what I'm doing too. I'm looking at it. I'm looking at it all. Um, well, I see there's like JWT stuff, GraphQL stuff, um, S3 stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of, I mean, there's promise. There's absolutely some promise here. Um, it's a little tough. Well, I guess we could try it for free, right? So get started. Yep. Let's see. Where does that take you to? You got to sign up. Sign up. Yep. Yeah. I don't know. Um, well, yeah, I'll have to give it a try. But hey, if you uh, give it give it a try and you want to, uh, yeah, let us know what you think. I guess in this in our uh, Slack. Yeah. Well, uh, and cool. I I mean the other thing is right. Like I know in the past there's been, um, like Proxy Man, for instance, right? Yeah. Um, that's one that's been incredibly useful for me from a mobile testing perspective and a Mac testing perspective. And it's not quite the same as burp suite, right? Like I still use it in conjunction with that. Um, but on the flip side, it's added functionality there. That's act that has improved my process. And so, right. That's, that's one of those that we, you know, it's, it's a no brainer because it speeds up what we actually do. And that's, that's what I, where I start to be interested in these kind of other proxies and, uh, you know, Hey, if it's something and it scratches an itch and it helps things out, then you know all power to them. Let's go for it. Yeah, that's true. There's sometimes functionality that's not yet you know in one proxy over the other, and you can switch between the. Yeah, like you said, whatever thing that you need, you could leverage another one for. So it's good to have more stuff in the space. Um, definitely no complaints there. Uh, just hard to comment too much on it because it's got functionality that's very similar. Yep. To every other proxy. And uh, of course, I can't download and look at the source code on GitHub. So that's, you know, further le- less for me to comment on. Um, yeah. Yep. In any case, cool. Yeah. Cool. Don't have much thought right. there. Yep. All right. Um, well, I think that about sums it up for today. Um, been going for an hour. As always, please join us in Slack or on social media if you've got questions or you have something that we would like to cover or someone that we should have on. I know we've got a number of guests that are scheduled over the next month and a half, um, but we're always, you know, always looking for others that would be interesting to talk to. And yeah, Kim, that's all. That's all I've got for today. Um, consider us for training if you'd like to be there. If you're going to be at CactusCon, let us know. Yep, same. Thanks, everybody. All right. Have a good one.